I've been working for like years and years on these kind of like core fundamentals of what I think makes a good software delivery system. Definitely in there is like a tight feedback loop. I think I'm less surprised maybe at kind of like how kind of bad in air quotes things are, but I would much rather say I'm excited by how much opportunity there is to lift the bar. Introducing stuff that seems like super table stakes, like not even really proper CI practices, but just really, really basic stuff can really help a lot of people. Building software is a team sport, right? Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Allicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Allicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Allicast. So, Pete, less than half of the low to middle performers in the Dora report have continuous integration, continuous delivery. How can we close the gap? I mean, I think a lot of it is around education. I think a lot of it is unknown unknowns. Like A lot of people, particularly in the enterprise, don't actually know there's stuff that they could be doing that they're not doing. Um, really? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like It's a combination of that or... You're saying that word, but it's not that word. That word doesn't. Mm, people redefining that. the definition to not be what we yeah, think it like is. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting, one, right? Not not what what is kind of the truth, but like what we the way we talk about things like continuous integration. So CI is an awesome one because if you talk to Jez or the people who kind of blaze the path for CI, they would say absolutely CI. Like definitionally, CI means integrating code into a trunk or master at least daily. I guarantee most people in the industry would not just be surprised at that definition, but would actively argue with people, no, 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 that's not CI. CI is my Jenkins infrastructure or my Tekton or whatever. Oh, I see. So they they would say the idea of long-lived feature branches that diverge, regardless of how often you build them, is not compatible with continuous integration, that you have to like merge with, with math. I with... think it gets really squishy with definitions like long-lived feature branch. So depending on who you talk to, long-lived feature branch, people are going to be like, yeah, yeah, like more than a few hours and I start getting nervous. Other people will be like, yeah, yeah, more than a couple of weeks and I start getting nervous. Mm. And it's really that, I really think it's that broad a gap. Sometimes it's people hearing the kind of correct definition and disagreeing with it. But a lot of the times it's people not even realizing that their definition See, is I kind of controversial. That, I feel like that, when we have these conversations about definitions, though, I feel like we're still talking about most of the people who are to the right of the 50%. You know, like if you look at the Dora report, it's saying that like half of engineers out there are suffering under, they can't even ship once a week. Yeah. And like I wonder if it's less that they don't know about it and it's more that they don't think that they're good enough or they don't know how to get there or they, they, they think it's for someone else. I think there's probably a little bit of both. I live in this kind of bubble of, although you know, I talk to kind of enterprise customers, I still kind of live in a little bit of a bubble. I live in Silicon Valley. Ish. We all live in bubbles. It's yeah, I fine. think I think we we live in bubbles, but I think you're the closest to breaking yeah. out of that bubble yeah. of As a having consultant. those. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'm less surprised maybe than you two are at kind of like how kind of bad in air quotes things are. But I think I would much rather say I'm excited by how much opportunity there is to lift the bar. You know what I mean? Or to like raise the raise the level, like a introducing stuff that seems like super table stakes like like not even CR like not even really like proper CI practices but just yeah. 
Uh, really, really basic stuff I mean, can really help a lot of people. New. They've been around for a long time yeah. now. And like the gap is enlarging. Like the gap between people who are, you know, high performers and in, you know, that fifty percent who who are losing ground is what I look at and I go, why? How? Yeah. I do they not see something in it for them? Do they not see like cause they clearly don't I'm I'm generalizing. Like it seems to me like if if they're losing ground, they must not prioritize getting out of that state. I think maybe there's a lot of it could be like a little bit of a disconnect between the people feeling the pain and maybe even the people who are aware of what the solution Mm -hmm. is and the people who can kind of fund it. Uh, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, feedback loops are really is a really interesting way of thinking about it. So, like, as a an individual contributor, an engineer on the ground, uh, maybe I read a blog post and uh, and have found out about all these ideas, but I need to sell it to my manager's manager's manager, right. and um, and they want to spend. And that all manager's their... manager's manager wants to bring in a uh, a transformation or, consultant, or or they or they sure. want to spend their engineering cycles on building product features, not on like a bunch of navel gazing internally or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's, I think some of it is like that kind of misaligned incentive, and I think like a lack of agency or like empowerment. Where right. if I'm in a more traditional kind of enterprisey place, I can't go off and yeah. uh, stand up a CI. Like I've, I've been at a few places, and I think I see this less than I used to, but I've definitely been at places where the trailblazing team were doing this kind of shadow IT thing where they were literally running like a team city installation on like a desktop under mm-hmm. like underneath that like on a, mm-hmm. a you know a spare server underneath that sanctioned their... computing yeah like kind of shadow IT i mean now it's more likely that the tech lead or the tech lead's manager is using his personal credit card to pay for like a gcp i mm. i feel like the f- part of the feedback loop that I've been focusing on for the past couple of years is putting software engineers on call. Because once you've yeah. connected those dots so that the people who are shipping the code are feeling the pain when something yeah. breaks, like it's like everything kicks into hyperdrive. Like suddenly things yeah. are like teams just take off with making improvements and everything gets better. And until you've connected that part of the feedback loop, you're just dropping shit. Like because the, the people who are making the changes are not, they're not feeling it. Yeah. Now would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. Uh, hello, my name is Pete Hodgson, and I'm an independent software delivery consultant is how I describe Ooh. it. So I work quite a lot with product engineering teams, helping level them up in terms of kind of delivering good quality software at a sustainable pace. Who hires you? Like what 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 makes Scope go, I need to call Pete to help my team get better? I think it goes back to Kind of what I was saying just now around people who are aware that they have an issue, yeah. and they are aware that it's worth. They they feel the pain. They believe that they can. There's a better way. Yeah, they believe there's a, a a brave new world, or at least a slightly less less crappy world, and they kind of think that I can help them. Is this often them. like like somebody joins the org and comes from like maybe a Google background or something or whatever, and they're like. Yeah. This can be better, and then they convince somebody to pay money to you to like come and, and yeah, like... yeah. So a lot of times, I, like for me personally, I think it, I mean it's, it's really varied. It's really random to be honest. But like, uh, like a few times, it's like a new CTO mm-hmm. comes in and is like, "Show me what, what your CD pipeline looks like," and mm-hmm. the and the the tech leads are like, "What's a CD pipeline?" Uh-huh. Or like, "Here's our CD pipeline," and the the CTO is like, "That is not a CD <laughs> pipeline. That is a shell script that you run on this one special <laughs> server." You know, so all that, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's definitely a lot of times it's someone who understands that where they are today is not where they need to be and has a vision for where they want to be, basically. Mm. And how did you wind up going from working on CI/CD pipelines and software delivery to observability? How did you discover observability? 
So I think a lot about fe- like feedback loops is like the, like almost my favorite thing. I have like in the back of my mind, I've been working for like years and years on these kind of like core fundamentals of like what I think makes a good software delivery kind of system. And definitely in there is is like a tight feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And you can't have a feedback loop if you don't have yeah. a, like some kind of observability. And I'm maybe observability isn't exactly the right word, but like it definitely fits into that kind of bucket of of stuff. Mm, it's um, this kind yeah. of interesting synergy, but also this chicken and egg effect in that it's hard to get observability quickly if you can't deliver software within three months, right? Like you add the line of code to try to get better instrumentation and then it takes three months to deploy. Right. Or conversely, if you have really bad observability, but you know, really, really good delivery, right? It's I, I think I think there's a middle ground, right? Because if you are if you are the kind of organization that deploys to production every quarter, you almost certainly have a cornucopia of pre-production environments. And you care about them actually a lot more than pe- people who are like really humming at, at CD and are, are pumping out uh, changes to prod every day. They don't actually pay as much attention to right. their staging environment, or their pre-production environments. People who release to production every quarter, they live like in their pre-production environments, and mm. they live in you know various different ones. And so, and I think going back to that kind of agency where you can kind of start shifting the needle in terms of things like observability is introducing observability in those pre-production environments, and you do start seeing the value, right? Because QAs are like, oh, I found this weird bug where when I click on this thing, this thing happens. And then if an engineer can pop open their tooling, and this is not just observability in the kind of like the honeycomb sense, but even just like log aggregation, like mm. can I get to my, like does my pre-production environment have logs so I can see why stuff is not working? That is a thing that isn't in all pre-production mm-hmm. environments. So adding all that stuff does bring you value and it's something that an engineer has the agency to actually do when a lot of times they're not allowed to touch prod and they had to fill out, you know, a form in triplicate in order to get some mm, exactly, tool. yeah, right. Like we talk a lot about putting engineers on call, but for some organizations that have more pedantic auditors that don't believe yet in separation of duties by code review rather than separation of duties by separate job roles, you know, I think that there is that need for that kind of middle ground of developers can benefit from observability in their staging environments, even if they don't have production access. Yeah, and most of the time that separation of duty stuff is not actually the auditors. Like, I've talked to a few people recently who were trying to figure out how to do, they're they're moving to CD, and they're like, okay, but how do we do PCI? And we talked about it a little bit, and, and they said, well, we can't do this, this, and this, because the auditors won't let us. And I said, well, why don't you talk to the auditors and ask them what they actually need? Like, what is the value they're trying to get? Mm. How can you deliver it a different way? And the mm, feedback loops. So yeah, many misconceptions, exactly. right? Like if you don't question your assumptions, document yeah. your assumptions, yeah. Or if you don't ask, like, I mean, the other the other kind of thing I'm really passionate about is like, what is the value like of this activity, right? Like, and the value of audit and compliance stuff, it's not actually security. It's it's kind of passing mm. compliance. So it's nice if you also get the, the value of, of kind of better security and all the rest of it. But like, if you say like, okay, well, what does the auditor need in order to check those mm. boxes, and then how can we deliver that in the most effective, efficient, mm-hmm. whatever way? Most of the time, the auditors are not the problem. And a lot of times, it's it's fiefdoms and mm-hmm. someone who's scared their job's not going to exist anymore. Times people use auditors as their fig leaf or their cover, oh, their my, excuse. Yeah, like the number of times I was a, a client where they just said socks, just like randomly, they'd be just like, like, is there a reason we can't? And literally, there'd be a grumpy person sitting at a conference room table with his arms crossed, saying socks. <laughs> it's socks. And like, if you digged into it, they would 
normally not have much to say about it, but it was literally, it would literally, they would just invoke <laughs> random kind of acts of Congress. Or so something. we have to kind of overcome the objections of naysayers when we're trying to introduce the practices of moving faster. I think you have to show them the value, right? Yeah. Like you have to say, A, uh, you're not going to lose your job. And B, you know, this is how it's going to make your life better. Like people respond, fundamentally, humans feel pain. And they respond to the idea of not feeling Um, bad. Nobody who has a job in systems engineering operations is ever going to lose their job. The question is, how do we bend this cost curve? How do we make it so that you can do more? Yeah, I'm not, you know, kind of the first person coming up with this idea. But people who are trying to bring ops people into the engineering fold, yeah, they could learn a lot from what folks did with bringing. QA and mm. testers into the engineering fold mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Because yeah. it's, it's actually, it's kind of the same thing. And I think also, on the other side, probably learn a lot from how so to bring product people in. I feel like in. we're kind of in the second wave of the DevOps transformation now, where the first one was like, ops people must learn to write code. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, we got it. Yeah. And now, it's, I feel like the, the pendulum is really swinging back the other way, and it's more like, okay, software engineers, time to learn how to build operable services. Right. It's time to learn to own your stuff. Yeah. I think it's super exciting because I think I, I kind of saw a lot of a lot of that first wave, and I think it's still kind of going on. Is product engineers excited to play with a lot of cool yeah. new toys? Like, yeah. oh, Docker! I can Dockerize yeah. stuff. But like, when you give them the ability to see what they've done, it's like taking the blind off. Like, I feel like today one of the biggest problems in systems is just that. Nobody understands them. They don't understand the yeah. systems. They, and they're shipping more stuff that they don't understand on top of yeah. systems that don't understand. They're just kind of like, you know, blindfolded, swinging the bat at the pinata, yeah. and that's how we're like managing our systems. And we've just internalized the idea that it has to be this way, and it doesn't. Totally agree. You can build systems that you understand. At Honeycomb, like we ship from Cron. You know, be, and like, <laughs> and and developers have that like muscle memory of they go and they look at the stuff through the lens of their instrumentation after they've deployed a change. They go and look yep. at it. Is it doing what I expected it to do? Yep. Does anything else look weird? And that catches like over ninety percent of all incidents before it ever gets to a point where it could page someone or bother a user. Yeah, and and I think you see a similar effect in other places. So if you give a product engineer access to Analytics like user-facing analytics rather than you know server-facing analytics, you get the same effect where suddenly they start thinking about like the the funnel and like how many people are converting right. and all that yeah. kind of stuff, and they and come I up think, with their own ideas, which mm-hmm. is the, like the most exciting part. And I think that's one of the interesting things that Christine Young has been saying, right? That when you have the data coming out of your service that aligns with what developers expect to see rather than system-level stats that make no sense to product yeah, developers, yeah. right? Yeah. That really closes that feedback loop. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't have an ops background. I, you know, I messed around with, like, building we my own... We all dabbled in our childhood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I didn't inhale, but I definitely built my own <laughs> Linux uh, distro. So, yeah, I definitely, I come from that kind of product engineering background, and I found, like, Nagios and, like, those kind of cool-looking graphs, kind of like... <laughs> the angry fruit salad of doom. Yeah, they're, like, kind of cool, but kind of terrifying. Like, if you showed me a flame chart, I'd be like, I don't know, I feel like I could, I'm not yeah. capable of, like, working yeah. with that stuff. But then once you start using it, and once it's stuff that you put in there that you're well, kind of pulling out... using ops teams as kind of like the glue that like interprets to software engineers what's happening at the... Tra- they, they're the translation layer. Like, yeah. okay, so you ship this code, you speak of like, you know, endpoints and like lines of code and everything. Now, that's what it means when it hits like memory percentage, and this is what the three different kinds of it, memory usages are. It's not even translation, it's like divination, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> super is. 
software engineers should only have to really speak their language, but you should be mm-hmm. able to break down and you know see like which which endpoints are slow. Yeah. What do they have in common? Yeah, you know, just like super basic stuff like that. I mean, that. I think it's, when I was getting coffee with Liz, whenever that was a, a while ago, one of the things I was saying to her that I I think is, is super exciting is kind of explorability mm-hmm. and being able to start with something mm-hmm. that isn't super intimidating mm-hmm. like an Agios whatever mm-hmm. and kind of play with it and go deeper and go deeper mm-hmm. and 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 learn stuff and kind of like slowly get that there that dopamine hit of just like oh, I didn't know this existed yeah oh my god like you literally get hooked on it yeah yeah and I I did I went through like the honeycomb the example data set that's mm-hmm. the yeah play yeah yeah and that was a, that was a super, that was super fun for me that was a super fun like And it wasn't minutes. even your data like if it was right. your code and your data you'd be like oh yeah. this thing oh I always wondered why this was so slow and weird yeah. yeah yeah that's the challenge that we've often had is just um you know anybody can make a demo look good Every data tool out there looks great, yeah. and they're often they look very much the same. It doesn't really sink in until you've used it on your data, and that's when yeah. you're like, "Oh, I could never ask this before. Yeah. Oh, I could never do this before. Oh, that's what that is." You know, averages cover over like a multitude of sins, mm-hmm. and like until you can break down by any high cardinality and, and just string them together. You know, like, well, and then the thing. That, I'm sorry, I'm doing a little advertising thing here, but like, <laughs> but like the thing that Danielle designed, where you know, if because humans bring meaning, right? Any machine can like find spikes in your graphs. Mm. Only human can say this is good or this is bad or this is meaningful, yeah. right? So like we built this thing called Bubble Up, where if there's a spike on the graph. You're like, I think this might be interesting. And so you draw a little circle around it, and we pre-compute for all the hundreds of dimensions what's different between inside that circle and outside. And then we sort them. So you can say, oh, these 10 things are different about this spike. Yeah, it's the opposite of other people's AIOps approaches, right? Other people take an AIOps approach of the computer analyzes all the signals and tries to alert you when there's something anomalous, except for there's always something anomalous, right? always something anomalous. And like humans are really, really, really good pattern matching machines, especially if you put like the visual cortex in there too. Yes, you can do exactly. so much cool stuff. Exactly. Instead of the computer deciding what not to show me, I kind of want it all to be shown to me so yeah. my eyes can just pick out what's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, right, or at like, least know what questions you want to ask, right? Yeah. Now. And that that kind of that serendipitous thing of like I was looking at this thing over here. Yeah. Hang on a second. Why is conversion going down? Because this that is the thing. Happen. Like we've been paging ourselves to death, and like I say all the time, you know, people should delete their paging alerts and move to like service SLO based, you know, mm-hmm. alerting. But in exchange. To, to get that, you have to kind of agree. Part of the contract is you have to affirmatively spend more time in prod, just poking around, yeah. just looking at it, just exploring, just opening yourself up to the possibility that you might notice something before it becomes a problem, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like when you're shipping something, is the right time to just go check in. Yeah, like I know that something's changed. Uh, I, I expect there to be a change, so I look at it through the lens of my instrumentation, and I see. And half the time, the things that you notice aren't going to be related to your change, but right. you're in there every day. Yeah. You're looking at it because, like, if you're only looking at prod when things are broken, you don't know what's out of place. You don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I. So it was really interesting to me. I, I interviewed kind of a, a good number of organizations recently, and asking them about how they do continuous delivery. And there was this super consistent theme of engineers. Carrying something, the ones that were kind of what I would characterize as high performing, and I don't have mm. like the, the fancy stats of folks like the Dora Report people, but the people who just to me smelled like they were high performing organizations. They all spend time in prod. Every engineer carries the feature to mm-hmm. prod 
and just looks for a while. Yeah, and I, and, right. And, the fewer handoffs you have, the better. And most of them don't actually have that much kind of fanciness yeah. around kind of alerting yeah. and monitoring and stuff like that. It doesn't take that much. Right. You just have to be willing to go look. Right, particularly if, I think the other thing you need is for that thing that you're carrying through to prod to be small enough yeah, that exactly. you kind of feel like not overwhelmed it has by to be yeah, yours. And we talked on an yeah. earlier. You can't be batching yes. a bunch of commits, other yes. people's commits, or you're just gonna be overwhelmed yes. by it. Yes. Yeah, we talked on an early Ollicast about the idea of smaller batches resulting yeah. in better predictability. It's it's so like it's I'm super excited by the the weird kind of coral or like there's an intersection between this move to fine-grained SOA, like microservices, and this idea of kind of team ownership because you yeah. can't you can't ship a monolith and say, oh, this is my changes that I owned. You don't, yeah. you, you just can't. So you have to do all this extra stuff. Yeah. I think going back to kind of, you know, we were saying earlier about people misunderstanding what some of the concepts means. I think a lot of startup e organizations and, and enterprises actually have cargo culted a lot of the really pioneering stuff that people like Facebook do. Mm. Facebook do some amazing stuff in the face of this gigantic yeah. monolithic deployment, right? Mm. And you, like yeah, if you're not doing that, you don't need to do that stuff. People saying, you know, Google does it this way, therefore yeah. I am too, right? And it's like you have to resist that impulse, right? Yeah. What's right for your context? Right. It's almost and almost certainly it's not what Google does because almost you're certainly. almost certainly not Google, right? Yes. Like or at that anywhere close yes. to order of magnitude of that scale. So why would you want to? You know, it's like watching an elephant and be like, I should walk like that elephant. They seem like they're making a lot of progress in the world. At the same time, though, when you move from a monolith to a microservice SOA world, it creates new challenges that are not solved by the same tools Mm -hmm. that would solve your monolith problems. Yes, for sure. When I talk to early stage startups, normally the kind of advice I give them is like uh, this idea of a modular monolith, like start off Mm -hmm. with bigger pieces than you think you need, but kind of have put some bulkheads and some seams in place from the get-go, so you mm. can kind of break it apart where you think right. those kind of seams are going to be. But don't start with microservices, or because they're a real pain. It's the same advice that I would give somebody who's doing database architecture. Like, mm-hmm. don't start with a giant sharded database, yeah. but like start with it in mind that you might someday need to. Yeah, yeah. put those seams in place yeah. so that you can kind of like... So you can do the migration. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's super interesting in that it ties into how I first encountered your work, Pete, which is your work on the idea of of having your observability be mm-hmm. separated from your domain logic. Yeah, so that came from... Great blog post, by the way. Thank you. That came from seeing a lot of... It's, this is kind of like one of these things where I saw a lot of teams that just instinctively did this because it seemed like the right thing to do, but then I came across a lot of teams that this thing hadn't occurred to them, so I was like, oh, I should write that down so mm-hmm. other people can hear about it. But yeah, like the idea of why do you want your kind of domain code, you know, like your shopping cart logic or whatever to be sprinkled with calls to right. an analytics framework or a... Spans and... Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, like all that, all that stuff. And it, I think I see this happening a lot when a open source tool or a whatever kind of tool provides you with an API mm. and you assume that that's the API that you should expose to everyone inside of your code base mm. right and like it's really easy to not do that and to put some stuff around it to kind of sand off the edges and and fit it to your context mm-hmm. right you got to fit it to your context but so when people like I would say if someone's using any you know logging framework or 
service or whatever, they yeah, should not be using it directly. I think it's logging and metrics frameworks that particularly encourage this behavior of not batching up your data so it can be correlated, mm. right? I think that that's the danger. I mean, I would say the biggest thing is that you shouldn't have to think about that as a product engineer. Like, as a product engineer, mm. I should just be able to say, do do do, I'm doing this thing. I'll let my observability system know that this thing happened. Do do do. I'm doing this other thing. Oh, now I know how much the the total cost of the shopping cart was. I'll let my observability system know that mm-hmm. happened. And I really shouldn't care at all whether that's batched up, right. whether it's put into some sidecar or written to a local file system or in in memory cache or each one is Why like a UDP it? packet. It Who so cares? Obvious. And yet we have so many people that we encounter who have been burned by having woven in deeply a vendor implementation into their code, and now they feel they're trapped. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about the state of instrumentation in our industry as it is. Mm -hmm. It's, shall we say, delayed. I feel like it's way behind where it should be, and I and I mostly, as I was saying, I mostly blame the vendors for this because vendors have been out there saying, "You don't need to understand your systems at all. Just give us tens of millions of dollars and install this magical yeah. library, and you'll never have to think about it again." And I can see why that's very alluring to your average CTO or CSO or whatever. But yeah. like, I'm sorry. At the end of the day, somebody does have to understand it, and when you make those promises. You're just going to end up delivering something that is incapable of doing anything specific. Yeah. I so I think a big part of it comes down to, you know, so I'm a consultant, so it always comes down to kind of people things. I think in this case it comes down to historically, uh, I'm an operations person. So there's there's three groups of people, right? Uh, very, very, very kind of generalizing, but there's three groups of people. There's like the product manager people, there's the operations people, and there's the product engineers. The operations people want to know what the historically in a in a pre kind of DevOps, a second wave of DevOps mm-hmm. kind of world, they want to know what the latency is of, of requests. They don't want to have to cr- like do too much kind of communication with other teams. They don't have access happen. to the source code yeah. either. Yeah, it's high friction. And so what they should do is uh, go talk to their product engineering friends and say, hey, it's really important for us to do our jobs that we can see latency, blah, blah, blah. How do you think we should do this? And together they sit together and they you know sit around the campfire and play a guitar mm-hmm. and then they decide you know they're, how they're going to do observability or whatever. Well, in reality what happens is a vendor or a tool comes along and says, hey, if you pay us money, you don't have to talk to those people. <laughs> right? right. And, and the same thing happens with product managers where a product manager wants to do an A-B test. And the right way to do it is to work with the product engineers to weave it into right. the code, blah, blah, blah. And then a vendor comes along and says, if you pay us money, we'll just let you mess with the web page <laughs> and you don't have to talk to a product engineer. Right. And the product engineer is like, why? You're like, you're, <laughs> you're ruining our lives. And the product managers are like, because you're ruining our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It no, just happens when you've got silos, right? Or when you've got teams that or don't. Or it just happens work because human beings, yeah, you know, exactly. uh, talking totally. to people is hard. And yeah. we all have a limited number of. Cycles and so we're yeah. like, well, if I can just like not have to deal with those people. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like this idea of context, right? Of if you share context, it makes it easier to work mm. on a thing jointly. Yeah. But if you don't share that context, then you kind of want to yeah. hoard your context and, and silo it from other people. And it's always introducing an element of unpredictability whenever you have to depend on someone else too. Yeah. And it is your job to manage down the number of unpredictable to limit your exposure to right. that. Right. And like, you know, decoupled things are good. And mm-hmm. it is actually good if you can figure out a way to say this system is not reliant on this other system mm-hmm. that's great i think what i like i love in the last maybe 10 years is there's been this kind of shift towards this kind of like judo move of like oh if it's really hard to 
do this stuff about all these teams talking together. Why don't we move the shape of the teams mm -hmm. and yeah. bring the devs into yeah. the ops thing or the product people yeah. or the QA or whatever? And then they're not having to talk across teams because yeah. they're, it's which, someone who's in their team. Which already. is really just like trying to realign so that everyone feels like they're on the same side. Yeah. Yeah, and and if they literally are, if you yeah. literally go to lunch with the, yeah. with this person every day, yeah. at lunch you're going to say, oh yeah, we were thinking about like yeah. how we're going to measure CPU latency. It's just like mm -hmm. really weird human stuff like that yeah. that actually works. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to keep in mind why we're doing it and not just do mm -hmm. this rote act of reorganizing your teams because someone says DevOps right. is putting dev people on ops teams or vice versa, but right. instead thinking about why are we doing this to break yeah. down the silos, to share information. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we talked earlier about the state of telemetry. I remember when I talked to you it was almost a year ago, and we were bemoaning the fact that there were no common standards, and thus people really had to, in order to get pluggable telemetry, had to use a outside library or use, or in some cases, build a instrumentation pipeline. Mm -hmm. Where do you think things sit now? Honestly, I don't know enough about the. I honestly don't track it enough. What to do you know. think, Liz? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we've both seen the evolution of the idea of an observability pipeline, similar to what people at Cribble are doing, similar to what we've seen, for instance, Slack do with their uh, Moran Kafka-based pipeline for telemetry data. So I think that's kind of one answer that's becoming more production-practiced and production-ready, is the idea of the observability pipeline in queue. Yeah. The other idea that we're starting to have increased confidence in is open telemetry now that there's actually much more momentum behind it and now that it's not vaporware, right? Like a year ago it was, hey, let's have open census and open tracing, you know, stop fighting with each other and work on one project. Now there's actually a SDK and an API that you can run in production, right? And I think that, you know, my advice six months ago that I even wrote in a blog post was, you know, hey, you should even consider keeping open telemetry at arm's length because goodness knows whether that's going to become another standard or whether it's going to fizzle, right? But now I feel like I have sufficient confidence that I would actually potentially just put open telemetry directly in, knowing that the SDK is flexible enough that it provides the domain oriented observability pattern that you were hoping mm -hmm. would exist a year ago. Yeah. I think like beyond observability in that kind of sense, if you talk to a product manager and say, hey, how do you find out how this thing is performing? Most of the time, they are not going to talk about open telemetry, right? They're going to talk about segments or like one of those kind of tools. And it's weird that they're all going through kind of similar problems that other kind of similar systems have gone through, but they're all being solved by like a whole new set of tools. Mm, yeah, I feel like we still have this large gap between BI tools mm, right. and observability tools for ops and in teams. Yeah. So I think that that definitely is a gulf that we need to solve because certainly people ask us today, you know, hey, does Honeycomb do BI? And we're like, well, we use it for BI at data Honeycomb. Data you can, right? like, but it's right. not. Yeah. We're not optimized for that right now. And yeah. as a result, people do have these separate data silos. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, there's the, you know, I was talking about these kind of three teams of kind of product manager people, product engineering people, and uh, kind of people that are kind of looking at things from ops. And almost everywhere I've been, in fact, everywhere I've been, there's three different kind of parallel kind of chains of information kind of being pushed yeah, through. Yeah, like, and it's maybe, this thing of like, why are you paying to store this data three times? Like now we're storing it twice, but tools, it should really be one. Tools create silos. The edges of mm -hmm. tools create yeah. the edges of reality. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like the flip side is, you know, in in theory, 
like they provide interfaces for those silos, yeah, right? But in so, reality, you end up arguing more about the nature of reality than than actually just yeah. like getting on the same page and yeah. solving the yeah. problem. Yeah, I, and I'm really frustrated in, in just in the end side about this this idea that you need to have metrics, logs, and traces like in three different tools, and and, and like it's. Because now we're going from three different data silos to five different data yeah, silos. And yeah, and it's insane, and it's unnecessary, and it, and, it, and that I blame the vendors for because vendors are just like, well, I've got a logging tool I need to sell. Well, I've got a tracing tool I need yep. to sell. Well, I've got a metrics tool. Guess that's observability. And you're like, literally, this is worse than before because not only you've got a human sitting in the middle just copy pasting IDs around, trying mm-hmm. to visualize it in three different ways, and it's just like they're all different sides of the same elephant. Yep. So to kind of wrap things back around to where we started, we talked earlier about the gulf between the haves and the have-nots of the people who are struggling with basic continuous integration and continuous delivery practices Mm. versus kind of modern practices that are both doing great CICD and also doing great OLLI. Kind of how do we close that gap? How what do we- are the quantum leaps that we can take so they don't have to just like fast forward through 10 or 15 years of like all the changes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like I don't know. I think it comes back to this thing of awareness that there's a that, like awareness that this pain you're feeling it doesn't actually need to be there. So let me give you a weird analogy. When I was a younger person, I was like in my 20s and I was building a Rails app and the way I looked at the logs was I SSH'd onto the three different boxes yep. and I tailed them, right? Oh, and yeah. that's how you looked at logs. And I didn't know that that was weird. And then someone told me that you can send them all to one box and then you can just SSH to that one box. That was amazing. <laughs> and then someone taught me grep. And then like I you know I showed up at some other company and they had I don't know like a Splunk or something like that. And I was like my mind was like almost literally blown like whoa, this is amazing. Like how far back can you search in the <laughs> logs and uh, I think there's like this awareness thing that people need to get to that that there's like this whole world that they don't even know is there and I think part of it is teaching people that like putting up a big screen uh, in the dev area with like a, a dashboard doesn't actually help at all or maybe it helps a little bit but like almost like forcibly sitting with a product engineer and saying like let me show you this thing and all the cool stuff you can so do. So there's one shortcut that I have thought of and I've been thinking about this problem a lot. The main one that I can think of is quit your job. Go work somewhere else that is is a high performing team because I feel like this is how we spread knowledge. This is how we cross pollinate. You were just talking about how you get brought in by a new exec who comes and is yeah. like, it can be better. And like I feel like in engineering, like if you can be very highly paid, like there's very little risk. If you think that you're working in like the bottom 50% of teams, go find a better one and and learn that. Because like I think there's this misconception that you know the high performing elite teams are made up of the elite engineers. Yeah. And that's no, not true. It's not true. They're no better than they're they're yeah. all made up of median engineers, you know, but they have been exposed to better ideas and they have higher standards for themselves. And once you've seen it, it's just like with your body, like once you've worked up, you can like bench press 500 pounds. It's so much easier to get there the second time. Yeah. Once and and it turns out it, once you've seen it, you can you then can go do back it. to one of the lower performing yes. orgs and, and you can make take it, it with you. Yeah. Right. But like while they're there without this cross pollination, like I don't see how anything changes. Yeah. I mean, I think. I'm trying to imagine, like hypothetically, so someone is working at you know a Nebraska insurance company, 
and then they go and spend. Do so like there's a, a GitHub repo of like companies that hire remotely. Uh, you can yeah. work with some of these, and and almost all of them are best in the back. I think so. Class. The thing is, like, so they so they they do their they tour spend of, a couple duty of years. at Stripe or something, yeah, and then they come back to the Nebraska mm-hmm. insurance company, and they're like, everyone, you will not believe. But then what do they do, right? Like, I think you need to do all that stuff of kind of the awareness thing, but I think you also need, once they land back in... Well, sure, you need a better reintegration strategy than just telling them that they're wrong, but... I mean, there. Are, I can think. I of think a few it's like. A, I guess what I'm saying is, I feel like a cultural. So there, there are a couple of ways that I've seen this happen. One is, of course, like you hire in a manager who's like, ah, yeah. this is appalling. This must change. Yeah. Another is uh, an engineer. This is a very bottom up way. An engineer just comes and like installs like like at healthcare.gov, and they're just like they came in and installed new relic, right? You know, and we're like, and then you just lead by showing. You're like, this happened at Parse when you know, like I didn't like sense up Miss Guba, but like a couple of my engineers started. Playing around with it, and suddenly I realized that they were debugging things faster than I was, and that yeah. was very hard for my ego to take. So I was yeah. like, "Well, I guess yeah. I'm getting on yeah. board," you know? Yeah, I think that's the kind of thing. Of it used to be that very high quality Ollie tools were, you know, unique to Twitter and Google and Facebook, yeah. and now they're available to more people, with such that you tiers. can just turn them <laughs> yeah. on. I you think can that, just do it. Yeah. So I think what we're getting out of this is that we can lead by. Doing and showing, and that we need to clone Pete a bunch of times too, right? Like when. Yeah, just, and, yeah I mean, the the obvious answer is bring me into your organization. Just pay Pete lots of money. <laughs> yeah, actually, so so that I does not work. Cut. I can tell, I can tell you from experience what does not work is like rubbing some consultants on mm-hmm. your team mm-hmm. uh, when you don't have like the culture. But engineers are fun. Like we all like we love creating something, or we wouldn't be an engineer. We love building, tinkering, creating. We love results, and like the ways that engineers impact each other. And affect each other are so much out of just like you know looking over and going, oh that looks better than the way I know. Yeah. Oh that's really cool. And like I feel like as an engineer, if you want to have influence, first you solve it for yourself. Yeah. And you just do it, and then you learn some communication skills so you can yeah. kind of like not rub everyone the wrong way, but like just just showing them a better yeah. way. Like we all as humans, like we crave it and we are drawn to it, and you have to really drum this. Out of us, hard to get us to stop responding to that. This, I mean, it's very true, and I, I think when you, you were saying earlier about engineers at, uh, it's not like the engineers at like the high performing no ones better. are better. <laughs> they, they're. they're I have worked with like some amazing, yes. like super passionate. Passionate in a different way sometimes. Some of the best engineers I know are like the backwoods of Idaho because they figured out how to make this hacky thing work, right? Like, yes, it is. They're just like really good. They're just like really good, and they just quietly—they're just like I don't know. Like, I don't really feel the need to talk about it. I'm just going to do it. Some of the best engineers I know, like, just are middle of nowhere. Like. It's not a question of how good you are. It's a question right. of you know being open to new ideas. So my like my favorite kind of like lean manufacturing story is about the 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 NEMA plant that's in Fremont that's now the Tesla plant, which is kind of an interesting twist. It's probably it's a long enough story that maybe I shouldn't go into it right mm-hmm. now. But basically, the the like the TLDR is they took the worst performing auto plant in America. And they turned it into the most high-performing auto plant in America with the, with the same, same people? people. Yes. 
it was they changed the culture. Yep. They empowered the people to, yep. to fix things from the bottom up. There was someone on the plant who was like, I should yep. install an observability you know, tool. Working at Facebook as a manager and like hearing the conversations about like the bar, you know, our bar is so high. It just, I would just roll my eyes every yeah. time because it's so self. This is a this is a performance they do internally for each other. It has nothing to do with reality. It's all, it is about the ideas. It is about the quality of the ideas. It is about your openness to new ideas, and it is about your communication level. Like at Honeycomb, our engineering interview is you know we give them a little take home piece of code the night before, but we stress that that is not the interview. The interview is you come in the next day and you talk about it with yeah. a couple of your peers because mm-hmm. we really strongly believe. If you can explain what was going through your mind, what you chose, what you didn't choose, you know the trade-offs, you can do the work. I mean, that is we al- a lot of the work. We almost right? don't even care what it looks like compared yeah. to like, can you communicate about it? Because right. that that's the skill set and tool set that we want our engineering team yeah. to have when it comes to you know yeah. everything about the way they work. Yeah, that's uh, you know building software is a team sport, right? Yes, so it's not. It doesn't really matter if you and, can do and, it all or not. And ironically, the the quote unquote elite engineers can be really hard on teams. Like they can be really damaging. They can be really Absolutely. you know, because it's just it, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's orthogonal. Like it kind of doesn't matter. It is so much Yeah, there's no 10X engineers, there's 10X teams. Yes. Yeah. I mean there's a there's the person that 10X is the team. Is almost always not the quote unquote best yeah. engineer. Yeah. I've, I know we say it's not even orthogonal. I think there is kind of a a negative. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For sure. That's true. I wanted to be kind because I know some very good engineers are good friends of mine and so I didn't want them to feel insulted. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, time has certainly flown by. Thank you very much for the enjoyable conversation. Thanks for coming. Pete. This is really Absolutely. Fun. My pleasure. It was super fun. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.